Welcome to Reading Rooney, an exercise in collaborative scholarship. On this podcast, you will hear from a variety of book lovers, including English literary scholars, graduate students, and general readers, as we openly discuss, celebrate, and critique the work of author Sally Rooney. I'm your host, Christina Marcucci. Wherever you are, thank you sincerely for being here. Today, I am pleased to be joined by Tabitha Sparks, a professor of English at McGill University and the Associate Dean of Graduate Studies in the Faculty of Arts. Professor Sparks specializes in the 19th century novel, literature and medicine, and narrative theory. In this episode, we chat about Rooney's feminist narratology, the autofictional pressures faced by female authors, and the appeal of complex male characters in Rooney's work. Here's our conversation. So I guess my first broad question is just what were what was your first gut reaction when you read any one of her novels? Readerly response. Um, I my first gut reaction wasn't the oh this is like a nineteenth century novel. I know that that's been a, a very common um, observation since, and I don't necessarily disagree. My impression was. Well, I was really struck by the fact that she doesn't use quotation marks. I think that that's worthy of a, a thesis if it's not already been the topic of a thesis. And related to that, the, the dryness of the dialogue, that so much is left out that we're, we're invited, if only by omission, to fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. That doesn't particularly remind me of the 19th century realist novel, which is often heavy on explanation. So I, I think, I don't remember specifically thinking this, but in, in commenting on what I just said, there are other moments in the novel that are more, um, maybe a little cryptic in their dialogue heaviness, like an Ivy Compton Burnett, who's a really underrated writer of the interwar period, writes novels that are almost all in dialogue. Mm-hmm. and. They're hilarious, but very, very dark because you're 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 constantly having to orient, um, you know, the morality of what's not being said or dealt with on the page, and that reminds me a bit of Rooney. Yeah, just kind of like the deadpan, low yes. affect. Yes, exactly. Yeah. and like not bothering to um, make either the reader or the character in the conversation more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, can you speak a little bit to what feminist narratology is uh, as a concept and when it originated as a field? Yeah, feminist narratology emerged, um, I, I think, in the 1980s. I'm sure there's examples of it before that, but it's sort of gained more prominence in, in more recently. It merges two fields that are typically thought of as antithetical, which is um, straightforward structuralist narratology is looking at the operations of text um, and and artistic style um, as if it's in a vacuum you know in relation to itself whereas most feminist criticism starting in the 1970s is very context dependent and likes to reconstruct the history around uh, especially a woman writer's particular interests or influences. So feminist narratology demands a historical attention and a, a socio-cultural attention to language and form 
um, asserting that there's no language, there's no artistic language that's not so embedded in culture that it therefore reflects the gender politics of a culture. Mm -hmm. Is Rooney's work ripe for narratological interpretation? Yes, but I would say that anything is. Um, you know, if you follow the, the logic of narratology and feminist narratology, more specifically, you couldn't find an example of a text that didn't um, evoke gender politics. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think I think her work is 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 amenable to narratology in part for the reasons I was talking about before, which is it's so spare. Um, you don't get bogged down in a lot of description or a lot of um, thematic uh, detail. And so by really um, by forcing you to pay attention to the language on the page because there's not much of there's not much buttressing that. It's a it's a quick step to a narratological analysis in a way that a detail heavy novel might not be. Okay, that's really interesting. So it's kind of like the lack of detail that invites more of that kind of narratological interpretation. Yeah, it's like when we when we read a poem, we 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 come to it knowing that there are um, there are signs and textual signs that we're going to be working to interpret. And I think the same is true for a novelist like Rooney, who, again, leaves a lot of the explanation out. So we're, we're constantly working underneath the surface to think what these words might mean, and we're putting more pressure on the language that we have to um, lead us in certain directions, in certain interpretive directions. Okay, it's really interesting because other... Um kind of contemporary women writers who are writing in this kind of deadpan yeah. aesthetic, uh, talking a lot about, not even talking, but kind of trying to express the malaise of like what it is to be alive today. Yeah. They have this like self-reflexive um, satire and like self-awareness, whereas I feel like Rooney has that, but just not in the same hyperbolic way. Yeah. And so it's a little bit different than a text like My Year of Rest and Relaxation, for yeah, example, yeah, which right. I would say is the same kind of aesthetic, yeah. but maybe very different in terms of narratological interpretation. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I agree that I think Rooney is, is very self-aware and very funny, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it's interesting. Her characters have been accused over and over of being incredibly earnest and kind of self-important or arrogant, um, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that there is a kind of end times freedom about her characters having really no limits on what they're doing because, in a way, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So they are unapologetically intellectual. But instead of seeing those choices as some kind of presumptiveness about their their intelligence or their importance, to me it, it reads as they have nothing to lose, mm -hmm. so they they can just be who they are. And I don't see any of them, even Alice, who's a really successful novelist, 
asserting that she has, um, she's making a huge footprint on the world. No, I don't think that she's trying to kind of make like a dent in the universe no. or anything no. like that. I think she's just, yeah, unapologetically part of this creative class and right. writing and has accrued a ton of prestige and that's just her identity. And <laughs> Right, and I think she's kind of bemused by it as if she'd do it anyway. She's not doing it for the attention. She's not trying to um, become a brand mm -hmm. of public intellectual of sort of you know the self-promotion she does I think she does as as the assumption of this is what you do when you're publishing rather than um, kind of self-aggrandizing if anything I think she hates the fact that she's famous yeah she resents it yeah and and most of the plot of the book is is processing that hatred and, mm -hmm. and feeling hypocritical and all those things which is you know it makes sense but I, I do um, object to the characterizations of her novels as like really pretentious or sort of you know ivory tower-esque. I don't see her characters making um, claims about their um, <laughs> their intellectual or artistic impact. Mm -hmm. Which brings me to the question of authorial identity where Rooney's own identity has encountered a lot of the same criticism and assumptions that 18th and 19th century women writers faced vis-a-vis uh, -vis their work, namely that their writing is auto-fictional. And like Rooney has been read, I mean Alice has been read as this kind of double for Rooney herself. Yeah. Um, there are a variety of women, uh, of reasons why women are believed to be writing from personal experience. Could you discuss some of those reasons? Yeah, historically there was a, a kind of inevitability about women writing about their own lives because women who were tending to be writers, upper middle class, um, upper class, were not um, usually very well educated. They were not worldly on purpose insofar as being sheltered from the world was a sign of their respectability and their femininity. So you had people whose lives were necessarily circumscribed and if they wanted to be writers, their access to experience was was limited on purpose. It was a double-edged sword because then they were con they were accused for for centuries of being narcissistic or narrow-minded or shallow. But the women that broke out of that mold were um, had far more problems by being accused of being worldly and promiscuous or financially motivated. Um, so there was, it was sort of a no-win situation. Either you were accused of writing about your own narrow experience or by not doing so, you were hopelessly um, unwomanly. So it was kind of this idea that women could only write about their own experience because they could not possibly have the kind of craft or skill that a male writer could have. Yes, and because that was seen as inevitable, it was, I'm thinking of the 19th century, it was taken as assumed that women's writing was therefore not artistically important because it was shallow and self-referential. So that the social constraints kept it at a certain, um, at a certain lesser value that ha was wrapped up in women's social roles, which you can imagine this is a, a ripe subject for feminist narratology because in looking at novelists that are 
you know, ostensibly or apparently narrow or self-centered or small-minded, we can understand those claims better when we think of the social constraints that they lived in them, not just that they had limited um, imaginations, which is another thing that was, was often said. Um, Austin was accused of being so um, kind of myopic in her details of, you know, a very small cluster of upper-class families into the 1950s. Ian Watt in Rise of the Novel is really dismissive about her, her social observation as if there's nothing beyond the kind of interactions of these families and romantic plots that's informing her. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that this kind of criticism follows to it, women writers into today. Yeah. And I'm not sure, I, this is a question I've had with myself a lot, like is Rooney writing Alice as herself genuinely? Because it does feel that way at moments, but at the same time, there's this entire history of women yeah. just, you know, being um, thought to be writing from personal experience. So. How might Rooney react or resist her rapidly rising fame in Beautiful World? Mm -hmm. And how might she push back or concede against the public assumptions that her female characters are a proxy for herself, the author and the woman? Well, that's a great question. I think she always can come back to the very most elemental part of what she's done, which is she's publishing this as fiction and she's naming the character Alice and not Sally. And because of that, there's, there's really no obligation to defend it as fiction. And yet, I think most readers are far more likely to tease out the autobiographical than they are to take the, the novel on its own merits. For some reason, and this, this is longstanding, we are very interested in how a novel reflects the real woman. And you see this throughout feminist criticism, not so much feminist narratology, but feminist criticism of what is her voice and what, is, what does she want to say and how does she find her voice? And that's always personalized. It's not just speaking for women. It's like speaking for Charlotte Bronte's own personal self, which I think is, is a fallacy. I think. Charlotte Bronte, for example, was really trying to be an artist, and she was constantly hampered by people connecting her, her characters and her plots to her, her own biography. Mm -hmm. I think Rooney is very much trying to be an artist as well, especially in Beautiful World with the kind of epistolary form of the emails. Those to me feel like not just she's not just trying to be an artist, she's very much trying to be like a public intellectual. Yeah. Um, so while those emails might reflect a lot of her own thoughts, I think they're also, they also express a certain kind of intellectual rigor yeah. that she's maybe not given credit for. Yeah, and if, if you think of it in a long view, that the novel exists apart from Sally Rooney, the individual, you know, when we read, when we read novels that are separated from us from hundreds of years, the imprint of the personality of the author that I've been describing gets fainter and fainter, and we have more and more trouble assuming we understand 
who that person would be. And I think Rooney could be operating in an artistic universe where she's really not obligated to explain to us what is her or what she agrees with or what she isn't agrees with because she she has opted to write in the genre of fiction mm -hmm. and no matter how much Alice might look like Sally Rooney she is not um, a prescription we, we don't ha we can't really read her as Sally Rooney right do you think if Beautiful World had been published first that Rooney would have risen to fame in the same way that she has? That's interesting. I'm thinking, um, was it Conversations with Friends? That, that was, was the first. Normal? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that also has a female novelist or writer who was immediately assigned Rooney's <laughs> personal personality and sort of worldview. Um, yeah, I think that if, if Alice had been the first novelist, that beautiful world is more about Alice than Conversations with Friends is about... Uh, Francis or Bobby? Bobby. Who's the writer? They're both writers. They're both writers. Okay, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's interesting because the fact that they're both writers uh, kind of diffuses this... this self-portraiture that is pretty strong or has been uh, pretty dominant in interpretations of Alice. So yeah, maybe, but I think, I mean, imagine an unknown writer writing about a very famous young woman novelist who's kind of bored and harassed by her fame. That would probably earn <laughs> Sally Rooney more accusations of pretentiousness than the ones that already haunt her. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because in every one of her novels, there's a writer. There's Marianne's a writer, a writer yeah. Connell's a writer. Yeah. I think all of her characters, except for maybe Simon, Eileen, and Felix, are writers. And yet we see Eileen writing an awful lot. She and does. very thoughtfully. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I, this is not something I wrote to you in the question, so okay. feel free not to answer if you don't want. But um, I want to talk a little bit about female friendship uh -huh. in conversations. Uh -huh. And I remember we were talking a few weeks ago, and I think it was um, the, the book Between Women. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What, so, ugh, how do I phrase this? But um, how does, like, Bobby and Francis's relationship rest like at the center of the text and like how does the rest of the plot and the characterization kind of evolve from their relationship and how do other relationships evolve from their central relationship if they do i i think that the the closeness of their relationship and the fact that they first start interacting with the older couple together is suggesting that given their their immaturity or, or youthfulness they really can't operate they can't see the edges around their own personalities yet and they're, mm -hmm. they're constantly defining themselves by this refracting example of their best friend mm -hmm. and there's a sense in which Alice and Eileen in Beautiful World are like 10 years past that and it's still it's still a big influence on almost their ability to be themselves without the other one. Mm -hmm. um, so I think especially the romantic plot in 
conversations with friends shows th these young women are um, need a, a kind of alter ego to bounce things off of or they don't have a sense of who they are. That's so interesting because I feel like in Beautiful World, like um, Eileen is very much a foil to Alice. Yeah. In yeah. the same way that Bobby is very much a foil yeah. to Francis. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about in conversations is that there just seems to be no real moral economy. Like everyone's kind of sleeping with everyone. Yeah. These dynamics don't make sense. Yeah. They, I just, I cannot imagine this kind of interaction happening in real life and maybe it does. But because of this kind of, like Rooney is not passing any moral judgment on her characters. Yeah. And I think in turn, we as readers don't necessarily pass the same judgment that we would if this right. was, we were just witnessing this in real life. Right. What do you think that allows her to reveal about the messy edges of female friendship and how it, it can often be kind of laced with like erotic desire or, yeah, yeah that makes I, sense. I, I think of it in the kind of fatalism that I see that intellectual proclivities of her characters operating in that they aren't beholden to uh, conventional understandings of marriage or love because they're operating in a kind of vacuum where none of these things seem to be important or seem to last. Um, so rather than making statements about, say, political freedom or feminism, I, I find that aspect of the, the romantic plots more of um, sort of a vacuum, you know, mm -hmm. without, <clears throat> without things mattering, um, without a sense of the, the crippling consequences that we would see in a Victorian novel. Right. It's sort of like anything goes. And I think that leads to Marianne and Connell having no real will to be together even though they want to be together. Sort of like their their fatalism overrides the evidence that they have that they keep wanting to be together. Yes, it's so interesting. And in that way, like the dynamics and the outcomes really differ from a Victorian novel. They really do. Yeah. And so saying that the Rooney novels are Victorian insofar as it's a young woman's search for herself in a male society, well, when is that not true for the novel? Because <laughs> yeah. it's not like it's skipped from Victorian to Rooney. That's, that's always been a, a mainstay of the novel, young, mm -hmm. young men too. Um, but I think that the fact that these women are operating in a world that has no moral consequences is about as different from the Victorian tensions that, as you can get. I agree, but then it's interesting that Rooney says herself that a lot of critics have noticed that her books are basically 19th century novels dressed up in contemporary clothing. And Claire Jarvis also states that Rooney is the latest writer in a long history of the English novel that takes as its subject a young woman's uh, plight. Feminist scholars have written on the centrality of untested female experience in the 18th and 19th century British novel, and Rooney is in line with this history. A young woman's development, both sexual and moral, gives a compelling story arc, even if it also encourages a writer to equivocate on the content of those sexual and moral developments. Um, and I think it's true that obviously 
maybe her romance plots follow in the same formal way as a 19th century novel, even though the outcomes are different. Obviously, we're li living in a different historical moment. But I think that that point about untested female experience is interesting in relation to all of her novels, but in conversations with friends about like Francis's uh, battle with endometriosis, mm -hmm. I feel like that's like a part of the plot that's not really explored as much, but um, that and also Marianne's um, shame around mm -hmm. her masochism. Mm -hmm. So could you maybe speak a little bit more to that? That's that's where I come up short saying here's one of maybe two dominant themes in the novel, 18th century, 19th century, and now tying it to Rooney. It's it's just as present in the 20th century. It doesn't come come and go. Uh, an an untested female or male character who's learning who they are vis-a-vis. Um, certain social expectations or limitations. It's hard to parse that away from the novel at all. I mean, I think of the great interwar novels, novelists that were thinking about um, women, you know, defining their lives, um, especially post-World War I. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, for example. She's constantly writing about women's consciousness of social barriers and social boundaries. Then you skip to the later 60s and the great feminist metafictionalists like Margaret Drabble and Margaret Lawrence are writing about Doris Lessing. They're writing about women um, often having political and or professional reckonings that are newly available to them. So I don't think that's I don't think that's original to Rooney. And so maybe Rooney, just because of the moment that we're in, culturally, just has more liberty to write those feelings overtly in a way that Rhoda Broughton, for example, doesn't. And we have to, we as readers, it's more dependent on us to kind of tease apart where that untested female experience is coming out in, this, in the text. Yeah, though Rhoda Broughton was more controversial for her age than Rooney is for ours. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. That does make sense. So, yeah. so yeah, like each each generation has to tell the same story. That's not a bad thing and it's not an unoriginal thing. It just means that the the ingredients of that story are in flux. And so it's mm -hmm. always an interesting story whether mm -hmm. you're in Rooney's era or in an earlier one. And I think that our interpretive strategies have to be stronger, maybe, to detect um, those moments or those undercurrents in a 19th century or an 18th century text than they do today, perhaps. Yeah. The, the influence of the, the, our distance from a, a certain literary context is so influential here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it can seem like revelatory to say Sally Rooney's novels about contemporary young women are like Victorian ones um, I don't I don't think that there's a whole lot accomplished by that that said though what do you make of the marriage plot at the end of beautiful world and could you maybe explain actually what a marriage plot is for somebody who doesn't know yeah the marriage plot was 
well, 18th century, especially 19th century, uh, sort of often the, the skeleton of a novel, and it can, it can guide the plot of a novel with pretty clear starting, middle, and ending points in that there's a couple, there's some kind of problem, and for most of the middle of the novel, even up to the very end, the tension is, will they or will they not marry? And that's the suspense that's keeping you absorbed and engaged. Um, usually, uh, the marriage is the cue that the story is over. So it's a, it was a very conventional way of structuring a plot um, the, the kind of cliche is in the 19th century that, that a novel would end in either marriage or death. Mm -hmm. That was the cue that it was just over. Um, I don't really think the marriage plot has gone away either, though the, the social determinants of marriage are different enough that a bad marriage isn't um, the sign of an ending, <laughs> nor is a good marriage. You know, marriage can be reinterpreted now in a way that can regenerate plots. Mm -hmm. But if you backed up from that a little bit and said that the love story or the romance is still um, essential to the novel, I think that would be true. It's just what that looks like in any given social world is a little different. Did it catch you off guard that Beautiful World ends with uh, Eileen and Simon getting married and starting a family? It's caught me more off guard that Alice and, was it Felix? Yeah. Yeah. The, wait, did they stay together or did they not? They stay? did stay together. Yeah, not they, in marriage, but they stay together. That seemed weirder to me than Eileen and Simon, who are both, in fact, deeply conventional. They are. They are. Yeah. And given what she already knew about him, I don't think she was making a kind of about face of ultimately choosing him in the way that Alice, in a more passive way, staying with Felix, that seemed to be much more reckless. And that Felix is a hard character to predict what's next. Simon is not. He's also a hard character to like, he I think. He is a very hard character to like. I agree with that. <laughs> I don't like him. I don't either. And there is a, there is a perverseness of Alice following through with that relationship. Yeah, I would agree. It almost mimics the kind of, to me at least, the kind of masochism that we see Marianne following with these, with Lucas and uh, Jamie yeah, in yeah. Normal People. Yeah, I, I agree. I, um, I mean, at various points in Beautiful World, you think that what Alice likes about Felix is that he's really inoculated from the other things that she's dealing with. Yes. Which is, fame and, um, you know, her artistic integrity and what that is going to mean with her publicly. But yeah, it is, it is hard to see what she sees in him. I, in another interview, um, one of the, my interviewees mm -hmm. were talking about how uh, Felix for Alice is a kind of escape from the creative sphere, from yeah. the sphere of intellectual the elitism, the expectation, yeah. Yeah. expectations. He's very much working class. He works with his hands. He, yeah. like, when they're in Rome together and he sees her talking, he was like, oh, so she's actually, like, pretty smart, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> and it, it just occurs to him that th that's something. Yeah. You know? 
it's not a it's not a um it's not a metric that he necessarily looks for i get that i think that's very convincing what's less convincing is why she likes him i mean he's rude he's rude i understand she likes him insofar as it's an escape from all that but she's still spending an awful lot of time with him yeah like i can understand that she wants an escape but like why felix right like it can't (laughs) the reactionary part of choosing felix you think would run its course. It just <laughs> doesn't. Like, doesn't. he gets worse and worse, yeah, yeah. and it just, yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, so that those were all the questions I had, but was there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to bring up or talk about? I, I am very intrigued by Connell. I think he's a really unusual character for um, maybe especially a woman writer to write. I think her... Her portrait of his his depression and his insecurity is actually more original than any of these things yeah. in Marianne. Yeah, and especially, did you see the show? Did I you did, watch it? and it was yeah. brilliant. It was brilliant, like that scene with Connell in the therapist's office, like, I'm happy that he, that actor won a BAFTA, Paul I Mescal. am too. I was blown away by that, and we've seen women cry about their feelings for forever, mm-hmm. but we haven't seen that, and um, there's a there's a really genuine pathos in Connell that nothing in his life explains, which I think is um, you know psychologically way more interesting than the the woman is at sea in a patriarchal world you know again we we know about that and that I think that in 18th and 19th century novels it's often women the ones that are rendered as being really fragile like. Yeah. Um, is it is her name also Marianne in Sense and Sensibility? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Marianne yes, in yeah, Sense and Sensibility, right. right? She just has like a total breakdown after uh, yeah, Willoughby, Willoughby yeah. <laughs> breaks her heart. Um, yeah. And obviously that's just but one example. But here we actually see a male character that's more emotionally fragile and he's just mm-hmm. rendered with so much care and yeah, yeah. sympathy. And, and never pathetic. I mean, he's the one that's going to be the great next novelist. Yeah. You know, like, I, I think that's a, a really... Um, original and kind of bold portrait of a man, and and that the the movie version makes it all the more striking insofar as it's a hyper masculine character. He is like he's the jock. He's, he's the jock very and, popular, yeah. and he's the sort of um, boy from the other side of the tracks that is going to make it. And exactly, everyone looks up to, and yeah. Exactly. No, I really, I really, really like Connell, both in the book and in the series. Yeah, me too. Um, okay. Well, thank you so, so, so much. This has been so, like, stimulating for me. Yes, it was very fun. (laughs) That was my conversation with Professor Tabitha Sparks. In the next episode, I will be joined by Emily Farmer to chat about female friendship in conversations and beautiful world. Until then, happy reading.